Japan by River Cruise is only possible thanks to the generosity of our sponsors. Here's a message from one of them. The Tokyo-based Steamboat of Doom Escape Room Experiences. This River Cruise Escape Room is a 90-minute interactive steampunk adventure in which you and your friends must put your heads together to solve a series of riddles and puzzles aboard the ship to escape the clutches of the evil Cole Baron. Escaping will require all of your wit, and it does not count if you just jump off the boat, so please stop doing that. It's not as clever as you think it is, and the company is having some liability issues with other vessels that use the waterway. This has been a message from our sponsor, Steamboat of Doom. Welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. It's been about two months since we finished up our debut season at the very logical and natural number of 19 episodes. And now we're back with the long-awaited premiere of season number two, which is a thing that we had totally planned to do from the beginning. And I think we were pretty clear in communicating those intentions the entire time. As always, I'm Bobby calling in from Fukuoka. And here with the bumper 20th episode co-hosting duty, it's me, Ollie Horn. That's right. On today's show, last year it was tapioca. But what's the latest Chinese trend that's spreading like an infectious disease in Japan? It's an infectious disease. Also, the first Japanese chef working in France to be awarded three Michelin stars is here in the list of things that we'll be talking about. And Ollie's got your River Cruise recommendation, yeah, Ollie? Yes, this week's recommendation is a special cruise that Japan is offering tourists from China. It's a free tour that sails from the Kobe port tower around the Kansai Bay, and it lasts as long as the World Health Organization's recommended two to three week incubation period. More information on that later. Also, did you know that some of Japan's most popular onsen are right alongside rivers? We'll tell you which river cruise boats are tall enough for you to catch a glimpse of people in the bath. But first, Soap Talk. Bobby, for listeners who have forgotten why we call this segment Soap Talk, should we cast our minds back to episode one of this illustrious podcast uh, and explain the difference between... Uh, let me see if I can get the difference right. Sekenbanashi is small talk. And Sekenbanashi is soap talk. You are very close. You've gotten close to it. I think you're still Thank hitting you. the glottal stop a little bit on Seken. Sekenbanashi. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but Sekenbanashi is small talk. Ali tends to say Sekenbanashi, which means soap talk. So uh, first soap talk of the new season. What you got, Ali? I have, well, obviously a wealth of experiences in the last two months. Um, I suppose we, why don't I explain uh, what happened the week which we first postponed the recording of episode 20, which was... Are we going to own up to actually just not doing it for... Yeah, it's one of these things we just didn't do it uh, at all. and then the next week we were like, okay, well, let's try again. And then we didn't do it. And then we were like, right, now let's make this a thing and not do it for long enough that it seems plausible that we had, uh, you know, some kind of real yeah. kind of... Which, yeah. which one of us was was like, let's not do this? Which one made it a thing that we weren't doing it? Yeah, I did. I said, we've got to, do it. We've got to take a break for long enough that it seems that we're important. Uh, if you take a break for like two weeks, it seems like we just can't keep to a schedule. 
And that was after the three weeks in a row that we scheduled the recording and then you showed up like three hours late. Yes, I showed up three hours late and uh, <laughs> for a live recording that makes it really difficult. Yeah. Um, but the, the original reason why I couldn't show up was I uh, managed to get hospitalized uh, from doing a session of beginner's gentle yoga. Right. Uh, now, basically, I, I joined this class and I was the only person in the class. It was almost like a private session. And um, I just just turned my back just very moderately. Um, and I was in such like chronic pain the next day. Uh, could have walk, uh, couldn't lift my left leg higher than like an inch off the ground. Yeah. Um, and then I, terrible. Then I had like a weekend of, of work. I was emceeing this thing. I thought, right, I'm going to sort this out with a massage the next day. So I went to this masseuse and didn't tell her my problems because uh, she never really asked um, and uh, couldn't get up off the off the massage chair uh, like bed after couldn't put my own socks on disaster and uh, I, I think I'm probably going to be talking about this in my next show but the thing which uh, the thing which struck me as most interesting about the experience was uh, fate meant that my friend who uh, who I was due to go and visit because he just had a baby said oh did you know that my mother-in-law is a postnatal masseuse so why don't you come around she'll see if she, see if, see if she can sort you out you went to and a postnatal masseuse went to postnatal masseuse and what she did was she basically stood on my back and uh, she's Muslim which I mentioned because uh, it's things like this that I think do create religious like religious conversions because she yeah. said some stuff in Arabic and then she stood on my back and then I could walk again. And I was like, right, OK, well, you know, Jesus might exist or <laughs> the prophet Muhammad or whatever it is they care about. Um, and uh, then the next day I woke up and I was kind of back to normal. And then I went around to her house and uh, paid her money this time and found out that she's less a masseuse, more a spiritual healer. And so mm. I now have a spiritual healer. Um, and most of the session was spent me wearing a robe for no Re no reason that she explained um and counting out peppercorns we counted out six black peppercorns six white peppercorns um and that was something to do with warning off some evil spirits that had been put into me with this masseuse um she got some turmeric out and i went oh that's good for inflammation she went you won't be consuming this uh she just got a pin put that in the turmeric um did some kind of arabic spell um right, right. involving my mum and uh i'm not sure well i'm not sure whether we got the ratio of peppercorns wrong or or something but it didn't none of it worked um and uh, yeah so, so so throwing out your back i'm understanding why you missed like the first week or two and then hearing what you did to treat it i'm understanding why you missed the other month and a half <laughs> i mean and like things got from bad to worse because then, then i had to take a flight uh and i couldn't get off the chair after it was like you know you know the, the handles in the back of cars right yeah, yeah. I, like, I used that for the first time in my life what, I was do, you like, ah, those, what do you call those in the in the uk uh, what the handles in the back of cars? Yeah, I don't know. Is there a I, we always we always called them the oh shit handles. Oh, okay. Yeah. What are you doing? What's going on? Uh, I'm plugging my laptop in. I realised that I um this podcast <laughs> episode might, might last for just 15 minutes unless I unless I pl uh, plug a plug laptop. So look, I mean, look, very very long story short, um, managed to uh, and then. <laughs> You know, th then I went to go and see a physiotherapist and then he recommended I tried some sports. So I tried skiing for the first time that I broke a rib. Um, and, and so like, all, in, all in all, I've not managed to make myself better. Uh, but I, I, I'll be dipping into these stories, I'm sure, uh, week on week, because this is basically forming the um, I think this is forming the through line for my next uh, comedy hour. Your next. Uh, so British style story frame, so storytelling structure. Lots of stand-up jokes also has a message, right? 
Yeah, and and I think the message is right that, uh, and this is something which I'm still really early in thinking about. But I think as we grow, like as when we're young, there are certain things that we don't do because we associate those things with people that we don't like, yeah. right? Or, or or kind of. So you know, I know a lot of people in school they they never did maths, right? Because they were like, oh, maths is for the geeky kids. It's cool if I don't do maths. Then they reach their mid twenties and they find out actually they're quite good at maths, right? They just avoided it because it, they didn't want to associate themselves with being a good mathematician a lot of people are like that with sports some people are like that with i don't know going clubbing or you know i think everyone has yeah, something that this is not a thing for me this is not a thing that people like me do and so you yeah. avoid it yeah yeah yeah, and, and so I avoided most sport because that's what the bullies in school did. And I was like, I wouldn't want, you know, and, and, and I think what happens as you grow up is you start to become uh, maybe less cynical about trying new things because the, I don't know, you're more sure of your own identity. You realize more and more that, you know, that, that you have these biases. And so I think it all started with, like, with me trying yoga for the um for the first time and and i think I've, uh, I've i've now done yoga three times and all three times uh have been a complete a an absolute disaster uh first time i tried it i was it was an outdoor yoga session in san francisco uh and uh i paid i think it was like 40 dollars or 45 dollars like a crazy amount of money to join an out they call it an outdoor gym right yeah, and yeah. what they mean by an outdoor gym is a park Right, they've just yeah, rebranded like a, a park. park. <laughs> yeah, for forty-five dollars, and um, and it started with us doing a, a lap around the park, and um, I felt so bad because it was all these like quite rich people, kind of startupy people, and uh, me there, kind of bringing up the rear. And as we walked around, as we ran around one of the blocks, we were waking up a load of homeless people who were sleeping on the streets. And I was like, "Oh God, we are the worst!" Right, this is just awful. <laughs> this, is such a, this, is, this is obviously a metaphor for something, and uh, I, I kind of got. I, I kind of got the measure of America or I realized quite how different Americans are to, to, to British people when I was the last person in the group and I was the one which kind of made eye contact with this guy just as he wearily opened his eyes and worked out what was going on. And rather than get really cross at me and shout, he saw that I was like out of breath and panting and he went, come on, buddy, you got this. <laughs> and like, he encouraged me and then went back to sleep. Um, and then, so I did an outdoor, I did this outdoor yoga session and the instructor came up to me after and she was like, well, I see this was your first time. I was like, I never told you that. Uh, and uh, she said, do you have any questions for me? I said, yeah, what's downward dog? Um, you kept making us do downward dog. I didn't know what that was. And she uh, said with complete sincerity, uh, in a very positive way, you were doing your downward dog and that was brilliant. Uh, yeah, which... Yeah. Uh, uh, and and so that, that was the first time I tried it. Second time I tried it, I was in Nepal. I nearly shat myself. And uh, then this this third time I tried it was at this, this beginner's gentle yoga session, which ended up being a private session. Um, and I injured myself to the extent that I had to get in and out of a car um, in the same way my elderly grandparents uh, do for, for, for a good six weeks. I but, have had the, the experience of, uh, of throwing out my back. I don't think I actually went as far as to slip a disc in my spinal cord, but I've thrown out my back and it's very similar. Uh, do you know what they call it in Japanese, by the way, when you throw what, what we in, uh, American English call throwing out your back? Uh, no. Gikkuri goshi. Bikkuri? Gikkuri. Gikkuri. Oh, gikkuri. Like bikkuri surprise, but with a, with a gi. Gikkuri goshi. And koshi is your hips. And so, again, there's that like weird area that some of what we identify as back and lower back, the Japanese people use the word for hips. But it's yeah. the same thing. Like you can't stand upright. Like certain positions is excruciatingly painful. It's awful. It's bad. And, yeah. and like it's, it's you know, I, I suppose you, you grow up thinking that you're invincible and feeling that anything that happens to your body uh, will instantly recover. And then 
I don't know, like the first time I noticed that my body uh, was, you know, I can affect my body in ways that will never change is I was, um, I cut my finger when I was studying in Paris with a glass and that cut is still on my hand. And, and I kind of, you never realize, ah, you do stuff to your body that, you know, lasts forever. Uh, or yeah, yeah. Lasts especially as, as you get older. Um, talking about aging, you identified that idea of, you know, trying out things or feeling more liberated or more able to try out things that you didn't think were for people like you as you get older. It's interesting yeah. that you identify that as a function of getting older. For me, a lot of that came from like leaving my environment, like moving to Japan. I was never a guy who would sing in front of people or dance in front of people or do anything that I, I felt like might remotely embarrass myself. And so I held back from doing a lot of those kinds of things because. I, I felt like there. I was in this environment where everybody knew me. It was wasn't so much my perception of myself, but how I perceived that others were perceiving me. And I think yes. leaving the environment that you're used to and going to some some place where nobody knows you was very liberating in a way that that I got to realize that oh, you know, singing and dancing are fun. It don't matter if you're good at them or not. They're still fun. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this happens to a lot of people who go abroad for the first time because just like when you start a new high school or start a college, you get a chance to reinvent yourself. And I think that chance to reinvent yourself, people are, people think that it's because they're surrounded by a load of new people. Yeah, that all of a sudden they can they they can uh, trick them with a new identity, right? Right? These people have never ne never met me before. They're now going to know me as a goth, or these people have never met me before. Ne they they can know me as someone that regularly goes to the gym, whereas before my friends, uh, you know, but before my friendship group was well, a kind of friendship group that would associate me with someone that doesn't do this kind of thing. Right. Therefore, they would tease me. Um, but actually, I, I would say that change of circumstances, right, moving to a new country, it's one way of doing it. But I think you're able to create that yourself if you want to like i don't think you have to displace yourself to do so it just makes it a lot easier for the reasons that you mentioned yeah, yeah. that people yeah uh, I, might you know, have, I might have discovered that anyway had i not moved to japan but moving to japan was definitely uh an accelerant it helped with that a lot so, something else that i've noticed about people that, that live abroad uh particularly those who live in countries where they don't speak that country's language and they end up mixing with people from their own country is the range of hobbies available to you is smaller Right. That is to say, the things which you would habitually do in your home country might not even be available in your in your host country. Oh, uh, right, and right. so and so like if you want to hang around, so like, take Fukuoka, for example. Right. The easiest way to hang around with other foreigners is in bars or doing something like a board game meetup. Right. And that's that might not be something that you'd intuitively want to do in your in your home country. But because that's what everyone does, that's what you end up doing. And so I know people that have moved to Japan and got really into board games as a result of it. Likewise, actually, stand-up comedy. I've got this theory about stand-up comedy yeah, in yeah. Asia that stand-up comedy audiences in Asia, the expat audience audiences are harder to play to than the local audiences. And people often people are often surprised when I say this, right? Because they're like, shouldn't it be easier to play to people from your own country than play to people from a foreign country? But I think what makes a good audience is not their level of English or or their or you know whether they're from the same country as you, but their comedy literacy. And what you find, you go to a country like, I don't know, Myanmar or something, right? And the locals in the audience, they're there because they're like super into comedy, right? They've watched loads of it on YouTube. They, they know stand-up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, if you think about the, the 50 or so self-selecting local people that go and watch stand-up comedy, it's because they're super into, um, you know, it's because they're super into comedy. Uh, whereas the expat audiences, those, you know, the, the, the foreigners in that country, often will do so because it's 
English entertainment, and that's what all the other expats are doing. So what you'll find is, I've, I've, I often ask people, is this the first time you've seen live stand-up comedy? And often expats, you know, like American people, European people, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, whatever, the first time they've ever gone to a comedy club is abroad because that's the, the, the available entertainment for them. I hadn't thought about that, but that is true. In Tokyo shows, a lot of times you get a lot of Western hands when you say, is it your first time at a live comedy show? I think there's probably a lot more natural exposure to stand-up comedy on TV and things like that. But yeah, now that you mention it, in terms of going out and seeking entertainment that that feels more like at home, stand-up comedy is is an option that people might take here just because it's in English, just because it's something that that yeah, other foreigners uh, are going to be doing. And because you know we we spend a lot of our lives thinking about stand up comedy and being immersed in the world, we forget that most people in the U.S. haven't stepped foot into a comedy club, a live comedy club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I had no idea that like board game meetups were were a thing in Fukuoka, but I'm actually pretty sure that uh, one of the Bryans was stoked to hear you mention that. Oh, good. Uh, well, um, if 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 it helps, uh, Brian, I have the same degree of respect for board games as I do for improv comedy. Bobby, uh, how have you spent the last uh, <laughs> the last two months? Well, uh, I think we had a lot of like dropped threads at the end of uh, we had some cliffhangers at the end of season one. There, um, I was getting ready. And we've for been that. frankly inundated with messages about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we actually do. We have one message uh, from uh, a Brian in Fukuoka named Matthias. Matthias, I'm going to learn this one of these days. Uh, but he says, where are the recommendations? Feeling quite stranded without them. Um, <laughs> anyway, my soap talk. Uh, so I was getting ready for uh, the, the, the company party that I was invited to. They invited me to do a 20 to 25 minute block of Japanese stand-up comedy style for uh, a party. You remember this? I do remember this. And we, we had a discussion about whether this was a terrible idea or... Just a just a bad idea. Yeah, one of the reasons that that we thought it was going to be so bad was because um, Japanese comedians who do these jobs bomb at them because the room is not set up for a comedy show. It's very spread out. Uh, they are not there to see a comedy show. They're there to drink. They're talking. There's a lot going on in the room. They don't really care about you, and so they don't pay attention. And comedy doesn't work if people don't pay attention and if there's so much stuff going on in the room. So I got there on the night, um, you know, it, that makes it hard even before you factor in the fact that they wanted me to do Western style stand-up comedy for a Japanese audience. But I got there on the actual night and it was a group uh, called the Esbon Kai from around Kyushu. Uh, and I don't know, Kai means like an organization or an association. Esbon is the name of their company. I'm not, not sure what it means. Um, but there were 40 people at the party, 40, right? Oh, that's, a, that's hard. Which is great for like a small comedy room, but yeah. at one of these parties, it's eight people at each of five tables, right? Oh, and, and let me guess, these were round tables spread out across a room. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were some people with backs to you? Stage, which was nice. But yeah, a lot, a lot okay. of people with their backs to me. Uh, Are you using an artistic license with the word stage? Was it an actual raised stage with a mic? No, it had an actual raised stage. It was inside this okay. little mini bank banquet room, but they'd put up a, a raised stage. Uh, okay. Better than some of the stages we've we've done. Um, uh, yeah, 
I've, I've, oh man, I mean, <laughs> I think, I think I, I think I spoke about it on one of the podcasts. That one of the stages, I was given an option in a game. And when you say one was, of the podcasts, you mean your food podcast, you mean this podcast, or you mean rugby, rugby? Ah, we love rugby. <laughs> Um, oh yeah! If it's any consolation to, um, to 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 fans of this podcast, my um, in the intervening two months, my other podcast um, has has um, is also you know got the audio equivalent of tumbleweeds uh, coming out of it. We've got we've got um, so you know basically uh, I've neglected a lot of things, not just my health. Um, but video you know, on the note of bad stages, I was given a choice by the promoter of well, you can either stand on the table that the table dancers use mm-hmm. right which is like a very very raised table the podium dancers use i should say you could stand on the floor where the audience are mm-hmm. or you can stand on one of the steps leading up to the podium and <laughs> and, and and so and and, and also and then of course you went the, the it's a radio mic so it should so you know it should reach anywhere and of course you can have radio mics are just the, the worst thing in the world mm-hmm. um and uh, and so i thought i was I thought that gave me a bit of dignity that I had the agency to decide. Yes, I'll go for the third step. Uh, I'll start stand on the. Anyway, so you got a proper stage, yeah. and let's set the scene. Forty people. Are they dressed in? Are, are they like dressed in suits? Are All they the, letting yeah, their they hair finished, down? They finished like a day of conferences, uh, and these are not like the people from the entire company. These are the heads of the different branches all around Kyushu. So the age range uh, of these. <laughs> Of these men. <laughs> of these men. Yes, it was. <laughs> let's look at the uh, the gender demographics. Gender demographics was ninety eight percent male. There was um, one woman there. There was one woman there. Um, literally, and, uh, there was one woman, and the rest were men. And the age range: the youngest person was forty two, and the oldest wow. was seventy three, and the the average was probably like sixty something. So I don't know whose idea it was to book this kind of entertainment for this room. So I, I walked in, I saw the room, and I went, I'm going to bomb. And I got up and I just just threw myself into it anyway, knowing I was going to bomb. And I had forgotten about the, the gaijin factor, which is, you know, they never pay attention at these things. But when it's a foreigner up there, there's this element where they're like, I wonder what this dude is going to say. Yeah, it's like it's like if 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 on that stage rather than their normal MC, like a parrot just was dragging a juggling club up to the stage. At the very least, yeah, just yeah. stop what you're it doing. Going, anything. You'd be like, Can they juggle? What's going to happen now? Yeah. What is? Yeah. How will this develop? And so they paid attention. And I I'll say thirty percent of the jokes hit, and thirty percent of the jokes did not hit at all, and the rest because because of the, the whole thing where stand-up in, in the West is more of a thinking game, they have what's yeah. called uh, kangae ochi, which is you know mm. the, the thinking punchline. You, the audience has to connect some dots for themselves in order to get the joke. And that's not a common thing in, in Japan, but that doesn't mean that nobody can do it. So anytime I had a joke that I know is like a, a joke that works really well in English, but is a kangae ochi in Japanese, there were three people in the room who cracked up. <laughs> the fans. Yeah. And like they, they put it together themselves. They were quick enough to figure out what was the funny thing. And everybody else, not because they're not quick, but because they're not used to that mode of comedy. They yeah, they're not of, bothering. They kind of went like, I don't understand, but I see that someone did. And so he's done something interesting. 
Yeah. And so, How glad are we of those three people? Imagine yeah. if they hadn't turned up. Oh, man. They, they saved me. And then the other thing was uh, because the nature of stand-up comedy is so different from Japanese comedy that they're used to, they were in stitches in places that were not jokes. So the like the thirty percent that didn't <laughs> hit, or like the forty percent that like didn't hit for most of the room, they would start laughing during the setups. Like they're from all over Kyushu, and I would be like, "So anybody here from Nagasaki?" And a, a table raised their hands, and I said, "Oh, uh, I got stopped for a traffic violation in Nagasaki," and they cracked up. And like that's, <laughs> that's the beginning of the story. That's the story you were there for. Do you remember when we did the, the show in, in Nagasaki and? I do. I, 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 I remember like pulling out of a it, parking lot and they were like, yeah. the direction that you're pulling out is a one-way street. And it, so, and it, I, yeah. I seem to remember it was just after a discussion of us going down for this tour show and working out if we just about made some money. And then uh, the police officer making sure that with your fine, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, didn't, <laughs> definitely didn't make money. So I have a small little story that has a couple of jokes in there, but like, you have the premise is that I was stopped for a traffic violation in Nagasaki. The and guy was a complete dick, wasn't he? You really had just pulled out of a parking space. It wasn't even like you went down the street. Less than ten meters, like ah. And and then when when and then when when all this nonsense was over, you were like, "Can you tell me how to get out?" Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was not a one way street when we came in. It was only a one way street after a certain hour at night. Time. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, then you were like, can you tell me how to get out? And he was like, oh, to be honest, I'm not really sure, mate. To... They pulled out a map and they started, they were like, okay, go down this way and take a right. And then one of the other cops would be like, oh, no, that one's one way too right now. And like, they didn't even know. <laughs> but but they were laughing at that. I have that joke about, um, about uh, my wife hates the noise I make when I come, which like you, yeah. do that, you do that joke in English and everybody gets real quiet right then. Like they get real quiet and then they, then you hit them with the punchline and then they, they crack up. And this one, I yeah. was like, my wife hates the noise I make when I come and the room burst into laughter. They were like, I can't believe he just said that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the, the, and that's not a very corporate friendly gag anyway, is it? Well, that's, I checked beforehand. I was like, can I do these kinds of jokes? And they were like, do everything that you want, do anything that you want. And wow. I was like, okay. Yes, wow. good. Uh, I had the roast battle. Uh, I had the roast just, battle. Sorry, I, just, just before we move on from yeah. this, did you do any crowd work? Very little. Um, mm. Very little. I, I talked to people a handful of times, and anytime a joke didn't work, I would, I would use that instead of just. I mean, as you do, like, like you go, ah, yeah. Yeah, just like leaning into <laughs> the subedi, leaning into yeah. the bombing. Um, but so overall they were, they were happy and they were like, yeah, no, we, you, again, because of that foreign factor that everybody was paying attention, they were like that in itself, I mean, made it uh, a success and we could definitely do yeah. this again for other events. That car crash was beautiful. Everyone was looking at it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So the roast battle, roast more battle. showing off. I've had two roast battles. Uh, I lost to Shanghai. Uh, Tokyo versus Shanghai uh, did not win that one. It was very close. Came down to the last joke. Uh, my last joke was not as funny as I thought it was. I got scared. I had something I wanted to do that was risky, and I backed out. 
Um, and I went with a joke that I knew was weaker, just about about how white he was, which is not the most effective thing because we're both really white. Um, but I wanted so he's a he the guy uh, Eric Alexander, very very funny comedian from Shanghai. Um, actually went on to win the uh, Bangkok Comedy Festival this year. Oh, okay. Um, but so he's a, a a rapper. He's in a rap unit um, called Covert Props, which uh, which was one of the jokes. It was you know his his unit is called Covert Props, which is an ironic name because uh, he's an obvious tool. <laughs> um, but the I I actually wrote. Uh, a verse that I thought, you know, if I if I get my courage in me, I'm gonna close with it. But I quit drinking. Yeah. Remember? remember? Oh how yeah. I quit drinking? I yeah. So I that. Uh, when apparently taking risks is a lot more difficult when you're sober. <laughs> <laughs> are you back to are you back on the booze now? I am not. I'm not. Oh. Yeah. All right. Um, well, mate. But no, he was really really good. One of uh, my favorite jokes of his was about my name. It was um. A white guy in Asia calling himself Bobby Judo. Bobby Judo sounds like something your racist grandfather calls all Asian people. <laughs> like this used to be a really nice neighborhood till all the Bobby Judos moved in. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, but he had a really great stage presence and just kind of kept like like bringing it. Um, and I think some of the jokes didn't hit as hard. He he referenced like Zoolander a bunch because uh, I have like that Derek Zoolander blue steel face. But a lot of the jokes, he would hit really hard with it and then drag them out until they went on a little bit too long and the audience started to get tired of it. But right. uh, Just for the benefit of the listener, by the way, uh, this is a podcast. You can't see Bobby. Uh, Bobby's very good looking. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, you could probably hear that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> what, do I so- <laughs> what do I sound like? Email in to okay. yeah. japanbyrivercruise.com. Let us know uh, how you imagine Ollie looks. Um, but so, oh, there's a dating app, by the way, that, that now does that. Like you just record a voice message, and then the more you listen to the voice, you start to see that, like that person's face reveal. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> so that was that was cool. It was, it was a really good battle, a really fun show. Um, but I kind of felt like I got out boxed in terms of uh his onstage persona he was very very active in a very likable way and had this kind of like you could i could see it coming from his uh rap background he had kind of like this swagger and this rhythm on stage uh that i felt worked really really well for him so um so i've been copying that (laughs) (laughs) i've been copying that brother yeah (laughs) So since then, I think uh, I, I've tried to be more uh, conscious of my movement and stuff on stage. And I'm going to put up a video soon of uh, the battle, uh, Your Hood's a Joke, where I represented Fukuoka against Tokyo. And I won that one. And I think you'll see there's a lot more gesturing, a lot more moving, um, and a lot more swag. Yeah. And I think that, I th- that I, helps a lot. Anyone listening to this that is thinking of getting into stand-up comedy or is you know, doing their first mics, thinking about how you stand and how your body moves is, is so, it's like so important. Everyone talks about, you got to write great jokes, but people forget that like, people are watching you on stage and how you look so like, so affects how, how, how your jokes are received. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think I've, I've been doing better on stage ever since I, I thought about my posture. Yeah. Uh, having a posture that suits the way you speak. Um, 
well, and the, the clothes the that you wear as well. One of the reasons that I watch uh, my my stand up videos back, um, I mean, it's mostly uh, to masturbate to. But the other reasons, uh, I tend to like watch and take notes on my habits and the things that I do. Like I like I noticed a long time ago watching the videos back that I would say a punchline and then move the mic away from my face. Like I was punctuating. Yeah. I was like, yeah. that's my laugh. And I realized how probably if you saw me once, you might not notice, but but I realized it's not a good look. And then I well, I, well, I think but I think I gave tricks. you this advice. Yeah. Uh, I gave you the advice that, that watch watch a pro like a pro pro act, right? Yeah. What happens is they they deliver a line and whatever emotion that line uh has in it stays for the duration of that laugh so they get much longer and much bigger laughs right yeah so you know you, you were shocked to see your sister just walked in and whatever that shocked face is or that shocked state that stays for the duration that the audience are laughing because they're they're still in that moment so you should still be too yeah yeah that's another thing i noticed watching footage back is speed like you like as the performer you tend to be on to the next thing before the audience is done yeah and yeah, yeah. that also shortens your laugh yeah for sure yeah, I mean, uh, uh, an op uh, open micers, uh, like, tragically sabotage their own laughs a lot of the time, I think. Yeah. Because they, uh, you know, they don't allow the material to, the, the you know, the, the space that it needs. Yeah. Uh, your, your crew in stand-up Fukuoka, uh, comedy Fukuoka, put on a one-liner show the other night. I know. Was, I, uh, yeah. I, I heard it went very well. Yeah, it went very well. It was eight comics. Uh, they each did two sets of... 10 one-liner jokes each and i think the entire show finished in less than an hour it's crazy yeah well it, it was it was my suggestion that that format was my suggestion because yeah. i uh when i heard that uh they were mooting the idea of doing a one-liner show i thought this could be a disaster yeah um yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the, the way that you mitigate one-liner shows being insufferable uh is yeah it's like strict limits on not time but how many jokes people yeah. do um and also finding a way to break the evening up so i think you did it in two halves in the end didn't you yeah yeah and i and still yeah. less than an hour and i think it was interesting because comedy fukuoka shows tend to be like eight performers and then two audience members so you've got like a total of of nine in the audience at any given well, time that's i mean don't please don't you know besperch my besperch my besperch. comedy besperch uh <laughs> besperch a word yeah it is now okay. uh it's what but uh it's when Bobby belittles me with some truth, which I don't like. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, I, 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 the open mic. No, the, the, the open, open mic. mic the open mic. Be, I mean, but most open mics in most places do, right? They tend to be you're performing for other people who want to go up. Um, yeah, I, I mean, occasionally we get lucky, but you're right. Um, yeah. But this this apparently was was quite quite good attendance too. Yeah, it was very well attended, and everybody was really really kind. Stephen did a great job emceeing and uh, getting everyone to be a generous audience to the point where they did this thing where. You, um, he gave out uh, a topic. It was just randomly assigned topic that you had to write a new joke about. And I got the topic, uh, elephant memory. And so okay. I came up with this joke that is not like a hilarious ha 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 ha, but very, I think it's very clever. And it's the joke is, um, you know, elephants are resentful little bitches. They never forget, which is probably why people don't talk about them when they're in the room. Very good. It's Very like, funny. yeah, it's clever as I see what you did there. And everybody cracked up when I said uh, they never forget. Yeah. Because they were like, okay, 
and they were used to that one-liner format of like, this is where a punchline is supposed to come. He probably thinks that was a punchline. Let's give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this shit over with. Yeah. The quicker we laugh, the quicker yeah. we can all go home. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm 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 really pleased that went well. And uh, what's interesting is a lot of the current crop of open micers, they all seem to gravitate towards uh, writing one-liners. And so, uh, I think that's, I think it's great. I'm, I'm yeah. really pleased. We've got um, anyone listening to this podcast in Fukuoka uh, should know that Comedy Fukuoka is a comedy club which uh, we set up back in 2014, and we used to have um, quarterly. Uh, visiting headliner shows where at great personal expense um, and personal capital, um, social capital, I should say, uh, I would bring in a guest headliner and we would uh, oscillate between uh, losing loads of money and losing some money and then make that up, make make that shortfall up with with poorly attended open mics. Um, We have two uh, shows coming up before the summer, hopefully, uh, with some... Uh, very worthwhile names. So anyone that's in Fukuoka that wants to check out Live Stand Up Comedy, um, go to comedyfukuoka.com, uh, like the Facebook page. That's where you'll get tickets uh, for these events first. And let me tell you, uh, I am very proud of the comedy club that we've created. Uh, the venue that we do it at cares. It's always a good. It's always a good night out. And when we get visiting acts, they always bring it because uh, the audience is generally. Uh, and we've we've had one or two bad eggs, but generally the audiences are some of the best comedy audiences that these visiting acts perform to because everyone's so damn grateful that they've uh, ventured all the way down to all the way down to Kyushu, yeah, yeah. and really they should. Yeah. There's better things they should be doing with their time. Um, which, right. uh, to be fair to James A. Caster, he did make that judgment call. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, should we go ahead and get into the news? Bobby Judo, what's yeah. in the news this week? Well, you wanted to talk about the uh, the coronavirus. Yes. Uh, so I heard from an American friend that mm-hmm. uh, American people were polled, and a surprising number of people think that it's to do with the beer. Yep. Yep. You, yeah. Uh, uh, so the, the thing that I find uh, fascinating about uh, this virus is uh, that... As as when we're recording this, which is Thursday, so that this episode's going to go out tomorrow on Friday. Can I just break, um, in, break in real quick? Because I just want to confirm yeah. something. Because we were talking about, uh, you know, what news stories we should do, and you said uh, I want to do uh, the coronavirus one because I have a joke about the coronavirus. Um, did, was that it? The Americans were polled, and it's about the beer. Was that it? No. Is that the joke? No. Okay. Thank God, man. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's right. Uh, I was like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm happy to see that you have not stopped your low hanging fruit tendencies <laughs> over the hiatus. But that's no, like, no, no. that's the first thing that everybody said about that. I mean, that's like take number one. Oh no, 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 that wasn't that wasn't the joke. And, and I, I'm now now I understand your reaction, which was yeah. you were like that was that. I mean, that wasn't a joke. That was I heard that was an actual like thing, right? That that wasn't me uh, presenting a okay. Uh, so oh, well, now, now, I, now I understand why your reaction. You were looking at me as if to go, Matt, you've let yourself, you've let yourself down here. <laughs> this is, uh, you're going. I, mean, I think we spent too much time talking about open mics. But yeah, so what if what if I really uh, really funny about this is um, the, the 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 latest uh like flight of people that came into japan from china the charter uh, flight. To, it was a specific yeah. charter flight yeah 
Yeah. And they delayed it Appar- a, couple, a couple of times. Apparently, you're allowed to just opt out of the health screening. And two Japanese guys were like, no, thank you. And uh, then they were found to be infected and had infected other people. <laughs> Mental. Makes no sense at all. Really? And to think how difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is news as of like two hours ago. So I haven't, um, I haven't been following this because uh, I tend to ignore these kind of like... So I, when... When they first hit the news, these kind of like outbreaks, I tend to look into how serious they actually seem. Um, and this one, the, the numbers on it are like not, I mean, it's basically a flu. I mean, it's not, the mortality rate is not that high considering the fact that most people probably don't get symptoms severe enough to go to the hospital with it. And it just seems like one of those like crazy media things that they're trying to make a big deal out of. But I did see headlines pop up and the American headlines were like, they're chartering American flights to get people out of China and they're quarantining the people when they come home. So as you should do, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, let, let's not downplay the scale of this in like Wuhan is on lockdown and there have been, uh, there have been unfortunate fatalities and you know, there, there's been some, uh, some of the social media footage that's come out of um, China has shown uh, some of the worst um, some of the worst parts of, of human behavior uh, come to the fold. Like, I, well, let me put it this way: the, I, that's I, the panic that comes from the media making a huge thing out of. And and again, I admittedly have not been reading all of the stories, but like, it's got a mortality rate that's comparable to the flu or less than the flu. And it's sure, the, but, the, uh, but, yeah. but not, not but, that like, it you know, shouldn't be handled. Not that there shouldn't be. No, but but isn't the point it? that we have vac- we ha- we do have vaccinations for the flu, but we don't have vaccinations for this. And uh, so there, there was one video, for example, of someone in a hospital uh, who wasn't. I think I don't remember exactly what it was, but she wasn't given a mask or she wasn't given treatment. And the nurse who was only trying to help her um, said, "This is all I can do to help you." And uh, yeah, uh, j- j- <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> I'm just uh, for the benefit of the listener. The way that we record this is we do so online uh, with a, with some software that allows us to see each other. Bobby, for a brief moment, covered his webcam with his hand so he could pick his nose. But, but what he failed to do was stop picking his nose uh, <laughs> before he removed his hand from the webcam. So what I saw while I was trying while I was trying to describe to you, dear listener, Brian, while I was trying to describe. Um, this poor Chinese nurse who was the victim uh, of a crime, what I saw was my screen just went pink, right? Um, B- Bobby's pink, hand yeah. pink. So that, so, so now I'm interested. Now I'm looking at the screen and then almost like some kind of movie crossfade, the, <laughs> the pink, the pink that dissipates into Bobby removing his finger from his nose. Well, it was so, technically um, out. I mean, it was out. I think you just yeah. reduced. <laughs> I, I, I did the backwards yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let me make let me make it clear. You might just be listening to this in podcast form, but we're real humans here. Bobby's picking his nose, and I'm topless. So, uh, we uh, so the, the, this this video just showed this nurse getting spat on by the patient. She was uh, like, "Well, if I'm infected, you're infected too," which wasn't a very pleasant thing to do. Um, also, uh, a tourist a Chinese lady um, took a load of medicine so she wouldn't be spotted. Um, because you know, there's like those infrared cameras at the airport to check if you're unwell. Yeah. She was like, I took enough medicine that I foiled the cameras, blah 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 blah. And yeah, I mean, and and someone on Twitter today in Japan uh said that he told um 
he told the uh, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm translating this on the fly uh but he basically said, he told the authorities at the airport oh, I've just I come back from China yeah and I've got um, flu-like symptoms, I guess is the way. Kaze no yoni. Yeah. So like, I've got I've got flu-like symptoms, um, and the airport were like, "Yeah, fine. I mean, go to the you know go to the doctor if you want to." Um, so it just yeah it seems seems to be um, kind yeah, of ha- yeah and they don't have the right thing. setup and the right precautions for it. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully, I mean, hopefully everyone uh, everyone listening to this is 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 well. Uh, apparently, the main thing you can do to prevent yourself from getting ill is to not touch your face. Apparently, the the biggest return on investment uh, in times like this is to not wear a mask so much as just not touching your face, which is really hard to do. I think you don't yeah. realize how often you touch your face. We do we do standard. Uh, my house is in uh, Teerai and Ugai house, so every time we come out from we come back in from the outside, we wash our hands and gargle, uh, and when people are. Or coffin. I think the girls wear like masks to school uh, when they're sick. Why do you gargle? Gargling, because uh, apparently, I think it's it's a general hygiene thing, but also apparently, like you can have bacteria in your mouth that hasn't yet infected you, and you can get rid of it. Cool, cool, cool. Is that gargling? Yes, that's gargling. Thank you. Uh, should we go? Should we have a look at the other news story? This is a much nicer story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kei Kobayashi is the first Japanese chef working in France to get three Michelin stars, which is the highest honor for Michelin, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know the history of the Michelin Guide, right? You know what the stars used to represent? No. Uh, so Mich- Michelin is a is a tire company, and they produced and then the, their business model was how do we sell more tires? Um, Obviously, you can't sell tires to people that you've already sold tires to. So instead, what they did was to encourage people to use their cars more, so the tires would wear out quicker, and they'd be able to sell more tires. Yeah. So that's why they produced this guide, and the stars simply meant one star to three stars meant the distance, um, the the distance deviation from your route that we would recommend. So, for example, a one star restaurant tip historically was this restaurant's worth going to if it's on the way, right? Two stars means it's worth taking a diversion, and three stars means it's worth making a special trip to this restaurant. Oh wow! Obviously, that's yeah, that's that's changed since. But that um, was the origin of that, there. No, yeah, well, apparently so. I mean, that that might be complete bollocks. Uh, but you know, that's not not stopping me not stopping me from wasting your time <laughs> explaining it, is it? Nah. <laughs> so, uh, so apparently, uh, they're saying that that uh, French cuisine has started to lose a little bit of prestige. In the world, um, or as the French would call it, uh, prestige. Yes, exactly. They say uh, their popularity is waning, and they're seeing uh, more popularity of foreign cuisines. And so, there's been more and more recent years uh, foreign chefs who are working and have restaurants in France getting more Michelin stars. So, the most recent announcement had uh, two Japanese chefs who won two stars for their restaurants, uh, and then one. Uh, the first ever Japanese chef to win three Michelin stars in France. And this is what they, uh, let's see what they like about him. Uh, he says well, he, says he doesn't at... like his cooking categorized as either French or Japanese. It's just the best. And the Michelin guide describes him as a virtuoso of flavors. And his cooking is both delicate and memorable. It's very simple. Every dish that Kay turns the rigor of his intention to. Every dish that Kay turns the rigor of his attention to is called on to become a signature one. His signature dish. Uh, my signature dish podcast available. 
uh, in the uh, iTunes store. Something that was told to me in confidence by someone who has a Michelin star. Um, I was emceeing this this thing in London, and what they said was the trick with Michelin. So Michelin has like um, a, a very small number of of um, inspectors. Yeah, and apparently there's kind of an open industry secret that the way to get a Michelin star is to move away from traditional French food because everything that, cause that, that, that field has been so thoroughly plowed. Like these inspectors have, have seen it all. Yeah. That's why it's easier, for example, to get a Michelin star for say a chicken rice stall in Singapore, because they claim that the kind of the Western mindset of the inspectors is more easily impressed by a cuisine that isn't the kind of this traditional French standard. Yeah, and so um, this isn't. This is. This sounds like I'm just trying to belittle this poor guy's achievements. Um, but you know, it's. Um, I guess it, it's. It's a testament to to France that they, um, you know, they they take on this this fusion cuisine. Well, not all of, uh, not all of the. This is a quote again. French gastronomes were as convinced of his genius. Uh, an influential culinary website said his cooking lacked coherence and emotion. Uh, and this is really interesting because what they praised him for... He lacks emotion. Yeah, Come on. What they praised him for was the precision of his cooking and the way he made relatively simple dishes like gnocchi, truffle, bolota ham, and Parmesan cheese extraordinary. And so I think one of the, the big differences that Japanese culinary world draws between Japanese cooking and Western cooking is that um, Western cooking is about coherence. It's about cohesion. It's about taking a bunch of different things and turning them into one thing. Whereas Japanese cooking is about making very simple things that focus on like the one flavor of the ingredient. Yeah. Which is why, you know, a Japanese traditional cuisine, you have so many dishes or so much variety, but each thing is a very simple flavor. Right. And, and that's why I suppose in Japanese food, it's very common on your tray to have like seven or eight different bowls. Yeah. And each of those bowls will have a very different flavor profile. But what nonsense to say that his cooking lacks emotion, right? It was, it's, a, it was a stupid thing to say. I mean, maybe, you know, depressed is an emotion. Yeah. You, you just I'm calling in today. I'm not just I'm just going to serve you some pop, some. Well, do you think you think there's an element of racism there that you know European passion versus you know Asian coldness? Uh, who's who's to say that Asians can't be passionate? Fair enough. Uh, this is Matt. something that I so so. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrible joke. Um, I didn't actually hear um, what you said. I, I, I said, and I'm now regretting it. Um, who says that Asians can't be passionate about maths? It was a, it was a low-hanging oh, racist joke, um, man. and I now regret saying it. Well, uh, so I think it's really interesting um, because uh, it's cool to see that Japanese people are going abroad and being accepted and you know, affecting change and influencing the cultures and the cuisines of the countries that they're in. But I also find it really interesting, especially in this case, to think about how the countries that they're in end up influencing the Japanese people themselves. Because this guy, Kei Kobayashi, is now the first ever three-star Japanese chef in France. He's probably one of the most famous Japanese chefs in France right now. And there's also an extremely famous guy named Kobayashi in America, right? So in yeah. terms of how the country itself influences the Japanese person, Kei Kobayashi goes to France and becomes a Michelin star winning chef. And the Kobayashi who went to America is the uh, hot dog eating champion. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's nice. Well, I think there's a lot of similarities between um, between French and Japanese culture. I suppose um, the difference is when you you know when you cheat on your wife uh, in Japan, it's a secret. In France, it's an open secret. Um, the both uh, both very proud nations. Um, you know, proud of their of their language, uh, in in their in their own respects, yeah. um, and both you know, struggle impossibly uh, to, to learn English and use pride in their language as as a, as a reason for why they just don't bother uh, to, to to learn English. But I, I'm one thing I will say: the, kind of the other side of this coin is how many excellent examples of Western foods you can find in Japan. Like, I genuinely think, and this is uh, this is after having been to to Italy. One of the best pizzas I've ever had was in a, a restaurant in Nakameguro huh. with a Japanese chef who um, went to Naples, learned how to make pizza for like 10 years and came back and just said, that's all I'm going to do. And every day, all he does is make one type of pizza. And he's there at the bottom bottom of his restaurant making the same type of pizza day in, day out. And he's absolutely perfected it. And it's, and it's such a tired thing to say, but I, I do genuinely think it's true. There's something about the Japanese education system or culture or whatever it is that, uh, that, that breeds a, a mentality that you can be proud in just having refined something, right? And just executing really, really well on one thing is something to be to be proud of. Yeah, I, and, I definitely see that. I think it's interesting that, you know, you tend to see people who dedicate themselves to those things as, as you know, one, craftsmen, and two, unique in their pursuit of their unique passion. But uh, I also know that there are like five or six Japanese guys in every city in Japan who spent 10 years in Naples learning how to make pizza. <laughs> like I, there are like seven restaurants that I've been to. There's yeah. one that I could walk to from here. And it makes me wonder what the hell is going on in Naples. <laughs> <laughs> if you just showed yeah. up at like a pizza restaurant in Naples, are there going to be like seven Japanese yeah, dudes in the kitchen? Like... <laughs> yeah, you, you. All right, you guys again. Episode twenty is in the can. Thanks very much for listening. If you are if you are listening to this, it means that you've listened to the full duration uh, of this bumper long episode. We're very grateful. Uh, I'd like to invite you to recommend this podcast to a friend if you haven't done so already. Um, if you are in Japan, living in Japan, used to live in Japan, have an interest in Japan, and you're not abreast of the river cruise industry news, then you're probably not enjoying it as much as you could be. And if you if it's a friend who doesn't necessarily have the same passion for Japanese river cruises, it's it's okay to recommend it to them too because after listening to it, they will develop one. Yes, uh, and that's that's certainly um, that's certainly true for 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 a lot of the Japanese men that went to Naples. You know, they went to Naples with no passion for pizza, and the moment they heard about it, 
passion for pizza. Yeah. Likewise, listen to one episode about Japanese river cruises, passion for Japanese river cruises. It, it all makes sense. Bobby, yeah. how can they get in touch? You can reach us at japanbyrivercruise.com. Go ahead and send us a message. Uh, we look forward to reading it on air, no matter what it says. Within reason. Uh, so back <laughs> next week to the normal schedule, um, back to kind of 30-minute lengths. So that's the perfect length of time for your commute to your Aikaiwa, Brian. Ding. Um, that's not about it's not about one specific person that's just um it's just just you guys um and so yeah we'll, we'll see you next week i stemas